0: got ghosts, porn and zombies on the Pilot TV podcast this week as we go back among the spirits for Mike Flanagan's latest scare fest, The Haunting of Bly Manor, pit teenagers against the undead in The Walking Dead World Beyond and take a look at the other side of the porn industry with Haley Squires in Channel 4's Adult Material. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that, as established on last week's episode, is no longer about great TV shows and now exclusively about just two of them, specifically The West Wing and Battlestar Galactica. Responsible for the former and making her way through the greatest TV show ever made for the very first time is our very own Terry White. Now, don't tell me if you've seen it or not, Terry. We're going to wait until the next section. I, I I will be very disappointed if you hadn't.
1: No. Oh, you didn't watch it. (laughs) What is wrong with you? You've derailed
0: the whole podcast straight away.
1: I'm very sorry. I um I had baby things, um, but I have grandparents in my possession this weekend, and what that means is unadulterated, (laughs) unfettered West Wing times. All
0: right. I mean, you you promised this last week, so so. I'm, I'm relying on you this time.
1: If, if the worst comes to the worst, you can come and look after my child uh, and I can watch the West Wing.
0: Entirely fair. I'm, I'm totally up for that. Yeah. Well, that was disappointing. But but hopefully, hopefully more encouraging is our second member of the team enlisting in the Colonial Fleet for the second time around in a heroic rewatch of Battlestar Galactica, Boyd Hilton. Boyd, how's your rewatch going? And have you been pressing on with it?
2: Um, I've been pressing on with it a little bit. Um, I am up to season four, and I oh, read so some- pretty good. Well, yeah, and I read somewhere um, just starting it that someone slagged it off. I was just just happened to see someone slagging off on Twitter saying season four was was terrible and and you know or disappointing or something. Is that would you would you go along with that? So, well, so far, I, I don't feel that, but I don't know why. It's supposed I to be so bad. I don't
0: think it's terrible by any stretch of imagination. No, right. I think it's one of these things where... So what episode are you actually up to? What's the most recent thing that's happened without spoilers? I've just watched the first episode of season four. Okay, okay, fine. <laughs> it's early days. Okay, okay. Because okay. I think once the... Final Five Cylons mystery starts to play out. I think it maybe becomes more apparent that they're winging it, and I think maybe that's where that's where you start to become a little disillusioned that this was all, you know, because at the very beginning of every episode, it promises they have a plan, but it becomes abundantly clear (laughs) that is the one thing they do not have. (laughs) So that said, that said, it's still the most magnificent show ever. Um,
2: So yes, I I look forward to hearing more. It is fantastic. You know, it's. um...
0: New yeah. Caprica boy, new Caprica. God, yeah. What is that? Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: More to come. Oh, amazing yeah. stuff, Terry. This is next one you watch. This isn't it. This is uh, this is what comes off Battle the West Wing.
1: Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> motherfucking nuts.
0: It's <laughs> grim as all fuck. You'd love it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's political. It's grim. It's... I
1: t- I'm telling you. Uh, Ever since I've gone through a significant oh, change yeah. in my life, I the grim is, doesn't appeal to me in the same way. I, my emotional fortitude has weakened.
2: Well, we'll see,
0: though, won't we, when we get to the reviews, if that's really true. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: So so other than other than not watching the West Wing, Terry, have you been watching anything? And understand that if the answer to this is in any way yes, I will of course say, why were you not watching The West Wing and watching this reality bollocks instead?
1: Well, well it's funny you should say reality bollocks, because I accidentally started watching Little Mix The Search and <laughs> yes. I'm obsessed with this <laughs> right. program. Jesus. This is amazing. BBC Saturday night telly it is best. And it's a genius idea which is you take the four lasses from Little Mix who by the way are the coolest, soundest, most down-to-earth, normal, nicest girls ever and instead of doing a X Factor style humil- part humiliation part inspirational talent search where people are um, embarrassed and humiliated and sometimes um, they're actually nice to them. This is all about girls who've been where they are now, kind of like just trying to help them become stars so they're putting together these bands there's like a girls band a boy band um a mixed band then there's like a vocal group an r&b rap group and they're putting together i think four or five groups and they basically audition all these people in this in this really lovely like warm room that reminds me of the womb and then they put them together and they create these, like, little energetic, exciting, positive, like, super excitable. Like, it's amazing. It's like what I imagine. If if the womb opened their own Instagram account <laughs> and streamed videos on it, that's what I imagine the show would be.
2: The look on James's face, listeners, is one <laughs> I can only describe as incredulity
0: mixed <laughs> with just, just, I don't know. So- so, for the record, instead of watching The West Wing, you watch that?
1: I didn't actively watch it, here's the thing. The, the Saturday night telly was on, I was reading, and it was there, and then I just found myself sucked in, and I'll tell you why I like it, because those girls are sound. But it's like, I feel like telly, reality telly especially, is embracing the kind of be kind um, message that's going on at the moment so nobody's really up for people being totally shown up um, on those shows which they normally are and it's just really lovely and warm and comfortable and like emotional and I don't oh, I am so up for the show Boyd tell me you've watched it as well because I think um, it's got Boydie written all over it
2: I, I, Unfortunately I haven't watched it yet I, I've been meaning to it, it just happened to have clashed when it started last weekend with live Arsenal on, on, on TV <laughs> And then um, also, I'm a BGT fundamentalist, so I had to catch up with BGT, which also, by the way, is I'm s- I'm sorry, responding what? to what? that what? kindness thing. Yes, what going? Prince, got, with-
1: Prince oh, got Talent. Oh right. sorry. Right. Which sorry. is talent. which I've also been watching. Yeah. Boyd's the kinder, um, gentler, yeah.
2: funner BGT, yeah. um, which is. Great, so yeah, but I definitely will watch it. And Jesse, I don't know if did you see the documentary she documentary, did about online? Yeah. yeah, that was brilliant. Online bullying documentary was fantastic. So they are they are fools for good, absolutely. They no, are, and it's no, no, no matter what James and his cohort fan base will think on Twitter.
1: <laughs> yes, and that that's pretty much, to be honest, all I've watched.
0: Good. Next week, Terry, promise me next week you will watch at least the first three episodes of The West Wing.
1: Cross my heart, I hope to die.
0: I mean, that's a bold, that's a bold promise. Okay, okay maybe I went first, too far. Yeah, yeah, and for the first three as well. Uh, okay, right, fine. Well, we'll we will discuss that next week, as well as how far Boyd has got into season four of Battlestar Galactica.
2: Yeah, I've also watched. Uh, I stayed up till three thirty a.m. In fact, this isn't true. I stayed up till about six a.m. Probably not only watching the U.S. presidential debates, the first presidential debate, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Um, uh, which, of course, has attained topicality because now Donald Trump has got the virus. So I watched the hour and a half debate, which was the most grotesque spectacle in the history of television and politics. I then stayed up to watch the an- analysis afterwards because it oh was God. so insane that I had to keep watching to say, well, did that really happen? And then watching on CNN, I don't know if you've seen you must have seen it, one of CNN's main analysts called it a shit show <laughs> live on TV. Hi. And she said, she went... I just have to describe it, it as a shit show, and then she went. And we are a cable channel, so I can say that. And then everyone else was like, "Fucking hell, you can't say that. You can't say shit show." But it was a shit show. And I did keep thinking while I was watching it, because thinking about The West Wing and thinking, oh, I, I probably will watch a few SM episodes of The West Wing soon, because I, you know, I loved it anyway. Is I kind of want to think what, do, what does, um, what do those people, anyone involved in that show, think of this? What's going on? Because this, the drama of this, that debate, for example, was so. Fucking bonkers, you know, that that no one would ever dare to dramatise that, to create that as a drama. I know it's a bit of a cliche thing to say, but it's so true, even more true than ever watching that thing, that event on TV on Wednesday night. So there was that. And then I watched all of Us, which we didn't oh, have did time you? to review. Yeah. And I'm annoyed that I didn't. we didn't have time to review it, and we probably should have done, but it was such a busy week that week. Um, so this, the adaptation of David Nichols' novel – by him, with Tom Hollander, Saskia Reeves um, and um, Tom Taylor as their son, and honestly, I mean it starts well i, I, I love the book. The TV adaptation is an object lesson on how to adapt a book it's lean it's every scene drives it forward um, either character yeah. or narrative it's about this this tortuously terrible miscommunication between father and son mainly. And it dramatises that so well and it, take, it flashes back to show you what the dad was like when he was young, you know, his fledgling romance. And you could see the little, the seeds of his personality being sown. His rigidness is really being shown, but in the honestly, it's so moving and emotional um, as it goes on, and in the end, I think it's, it shows you that kind of it's it's a, it's not you know it's kind of very mainstream. It's very accessible. It's David Nichols. It's got that kind of you know incredible watchability. Like his novel has a readability, but in the end, it's as moving as anything you'll see. Honestly, it's so brilliantly done, Tom Hollander will will we'll be nominated for all the awards, but I fucking loved it, and it uses Kate Bush music in a, in a, in a <laughs> brilliant mm. way as well. Um, so uh, yeah, us. I, yeah. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's now kind of one of the one of it, it's it's one of the things of the year. I think now, like top twenty, ten twenty things of the year. I'm
1: gonna. I've heard. I've heard good things, and I've heard yeah, a lot of people talking yeah. about it. And I'm I'm gonna. Um, well now that's my watch list, Boyd, Yeah. Thanks to good, you. Is it good. is it kind of normal people-ish? I don't know why in my head I've got it that it kind of sits no, in the world. place. it's much less
2: it's much less it's seemingly much less intense. It's more comedic than normal people. Mm. It's funny. So because Tom Hollander, you know, his character is a ludicrous doofus in many ways. Yeah. So it's got that. It's much it's much less self consciously intense, but in the end it is as emotionally emotional experience to watch, I think, as normal people. Because you just believe because it's so it's so true what that relationship and how it plays out between father and son particularly.
1: Which is which is what one day was like react right because yes. Jim Sturgis's yeah, character was a right. giant raging yeah. dickhead.
2: Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm it's, gonna give it yeah, a go. It, it, yeah. How does a dickhead kind of find
0: redemption? Yeah, is the underlying story.
1: How how indeed, James?
0: <laughs> how indeed? Yes. Well, quite. Uh, I have not watched us I did watch the whole of season seven of Ray Donovan. Which uh, I finally caught up random. with. So,
2: yeah, it was quite no, I was not expecting
0: that. No. <laughs> well, because I I watched all of Ray Donovan up to that point, but I never watched season seven. I think because season six, kind of when they moved back to New York, didn't interest me as much. Season seven, I quite enjoyed this. You know, I went through it. It's not essential. I think Ray Donovan's been in a holding pattern for quite some time. So.
2: But why did you suddenly
0: think of it at all? I don't know. It just, oh. I, it just, I think I wanted would... something familiar and not quite comforting, okay. but something you know with people that I knew in it, and I so I I watched the first. <laughs> First one, thought I just watched the first one. And before you knew it, seven had gone by. So I had seen all of Ray Donovan season wow. seven. Uh, I also watched the debate episode from season seven. Of uh, the West Wing because that seemed quite topical, which was the live episode. They did East and West oh, Coast yeah. versions of that, uh, and it's Alan Alda and Jimmy Smith essentially doing their live debate. And it is a masterpiece of television. It? It's just oh, extraordinary. I might watch that. I might watch it's that. Very, very good. Netflix had a an edited for television version on their uh, on their service for ages, and the West Wing Weekly actually called them out on it, and they've since changed it. And now you can get the unedited one on there. Why was it edited? Which, uh, because it was. Uh, you ask a good question. I think it was edited for whatever service. This Netflix got it from. I can't remember why, but it was uh, okay. it was it was cut back, and it didn't really work with those ten minutes missing. So it's important to watch the full hour long version. But it's really really good. It's it's and you know they they throw the rules out and they debate each other in a civilized, intelligent, policy driven way. So it's quite novel. <laughs> it's a fantasy. <laughs> yeah, no one tells anyone else to shut up or interrupts. Well, there's okay, there's a bit of interrupting, but in in a good way, in a good way. But yeah, that's a, that's a great episode. Of the West Wing, Terry, you have to look forward to. Woo! Yes, indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Well, if that is all that we've been watching, let us move on now to this week's listener question, which comes from Andy Gaffney, host of the Be Grand podcast. And he says, are there any quotes or moments in TV that race around your head when you most need inspiration, hope, or just a kick up the arse?
1: I'll start. So I've got three that immediately sprang to mind. I'm sure there's like a hundred others, but these were kind of front of mind, First one is from friends, and it's it's not that common. It doesn't happen to every guy, and it is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we all know what that refers <laughs> to. I
0: don't know why
1: that inspires me so much, but it definitely um, uh, makes me feel empowered. Um, Buffy, but not what you think—not the speech you're thinking of to the boring other slayers, but Buffy's speech to Dawn before she sacrifices herself. And she whispers in her ear and then it's narration as she's electrocuted to death, which I fell down a bit of a Buffy YouTube hole this morning. Uh, (laughs) Let me tell you, that electrocution scene is pretty full on. As is, when Buffy returns to her body the way she gets goes back inside her own skeleton and the skeleton or the mouth is all open and her skin's all decayed. Like it's really full on that entire bit. I forgot how gross her <laughs> buffy decomposing body in the coffin was, but that isn't the point. So the piece of narration um, and people quote this on Twitter quite a lot is the hardest thing in this world is to live in it. Be brave, live. And that's got me through some, you know, tough days. But the, probably the greatest, most motivational speech of all, I would have to say, is Kristen Scott Thomas in Fleabag. The speech that begins, women are born with Pain built in, and it's ostensibly a speech about why we should all look forward to the menopause, but it's really about the reality of being a woman, our physical destiny to have pain, to live with pain every single day in day of our lives. And then she talks about how basically, when you do get the menopause, um, and you do get to a certain age as a woman, she says you're free, no longer a slave, no longer a machine with parts, you're just a person. So some days, you know, when my cervix is screaming and I just feel like I can't go in other days as a woman, I think of Kristen Scott Thomas's words and realise that I've only got probably a decade to go until I'm free from this physical enslavement.
0: Terry's Screaming Cervix should 100% be the name of your band. (laughs) Yeah
1: second part of my
0: memoir yes <laughs> yes and that
1: the screaming Those are
0: good quite profound examples yeah. wow boyd can you can you match that no
2: no um <laughs> i just i couldn't i couldn't stop thinking of quotes from the office so um <laughs> things like david brent saying if you were to ask me to name three geniuses i wouldn't say einstein newton i'd go milligan cleese <laughs> everett sessions <laughs> And um, he said, he said, um, I don't live by the rules. And if there's one other person who's influenced me in that way, I think someone who is a maverick, someone who does that to the system, then it's Ian Botham. (laughs) Botham. You can't say the
1: next bit though, can you? No, I can't say the
2: next bit. Exactly. You're right. I've censored myself. listeners will know but I did find one I did purely uh, found one proper serious quote that I love that I don't really understand it but it's such a beautiful line of dialogue and it's obviously from the OA (laughs) Um, and and the reason I I actually rewatched I had to do a rewatch of some of the OA for an interview I was doing with a cast member and um, there's this moment where the OA herself says this that's what an angel is dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world And I thought, fucking hell, that's, I mean, whatever the fuck it means, it's good.
0: (laughs) God, where to even begin? Mine would be the whole of the West Wing, going all the way through say, it, yeah, start yeah. to finish. Obviously, when I curse God out in Latin, then regularly I go to uh, the West Wing for inspiration. But uh, specifically, there's a really nice piece, Sam Seaborn, Roblo, Lowe, uh, has a bit in there that always sticks with me. There's a bit where he's been arguing with Mallory, who's Leo's daughter, about education and school vouchers. And it turns out that he's actually been doing kind of opposition prep. So he's actually playing devil's advocate. He's arguing against his own position. And when he finally talks about what he believes, he has has this wonderful little monologue, which is education is the silver bullet. Education is everything. We don't need little changes. We need gigantic, monumental changes. Schools should be palaces. Competition for the best teachers should be fierce. They should be making six-figure salaries. Schools should be incredibly expensive for government and absolutely free of charge to its citizens, just like national defence. And I always thought that was wonderful. One of the many kind of uh, <laughs> liberal sort of uh, pipe dreams that kind of come out of that show. But uh, that's a very, very good one. What else would I use? Um, I have regularly used the Josh line. I drink from the keg of glory, bring me the finest muffins and bagels in all the land. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know there's a couple from The Wire that that I always found quite profound especially in this kind of climate that we now live in there's a bit where the bunk says uh, the bigger the lie the more they believe that is just 100% the age that we live in now mm. and then of course the classic sort of Lester Freeman thing when he talks about sort of the case they're building and it's like we're building something here we're building it from scratch all the pieces matter uh, and that kind of sums up that show beautifully there's all these interlocking pieces coming together and they all matter in and of their own right Um, I don't know how I apply that to life as a whole, but I think it's an excellent paradigm for The Wire. (laughs) Any others you would like to share? No. It's a hard question, that one. It I is thought. a hard question. It is it was a hard interesting, question. But, hard. but I mean, I like individual lines from uh, from shows. I don't think I will turn to shows, certainly, for inspiration yeah. and to yeah. get me through this stuff. The West Wing being the obvious example. But so many things like that, you know, where I think Sarah Phelps talked about this when she was on the podcast. She was saying, you know, why so many people like uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys in that it's like a warm embrace. There's something about it that's comforting and it makes them feel safe. And it kind of, it, all of the noise and the nightmare that is the current world we live in kind of fades away. So I think having a comfort show is a really important thing. You can do it with films too, but I think there's something about TV being long form, the way you can sit down, like whether it be friends, whether it be whatever your comfort show is, that you can sit down and just let it wash over you and wash all of the sort of cares of the world away. Uh, mm. There's something very much- L- Little Mix, say mix to that. the Search. Yep. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> little Mix the Search is the salve for all wounds. <laughs> Right. Well, Andy, I hope we have answered that to your satisfaction. If you have a question for the Pilot TV podcast, do feel free to send it to us via DM on Twitter at Pilot TV Pod. Right. Shall we move on to this week's TV news? What have you got for us, Boyd?
2: Do you know there's a TV project um, being produced by Hillary Clinton and (laughs) Steven Spielberg Uh together? Have you heard about this? Is it a Tintin film? It's not a Tintin film. It is the Woman's Hour, an anthology drama based on the Elaine Weiss book, "The Woman's Hour: The Great Fight to Win the Vote," produced by Clinton and Steven Spielberg. It's going to be—it's going to examine the suffragettes' battle to ratify the Nineteenth Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. Each season will look to highlight those who've changed history and whose impact has reverberated to the present. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, what more can you want? Clinton—that well,
1: sounds amazing. Yeah,
2: Spielberg together.
1: At last.
2: At last. At last, (laughs) yes. Drama. (laughs) Making a drama about women. Bring it on.
1: Did we see that um, Muffet Clark is going to be Galadriel? Galadriel. Galadriel,
0: yes. (laughs) Well, she's been cast for quite a long time.
1: Well, why was it on the Empire website two days (laughs) ago? Because
0: she talked about it. She quoted (laughs) it. In fact, that came from the previous issue of Empire. We've just been sitting on it for a while. We spoke to her for Saint Maud, and she mentioned the fact that it's insane that she's playing Galadriel. uh, And she talked a little bit about about being that character. But uh, sadly, Terry, not a new thing. (laughs)
1: Well, I i mean, I've only just seen, <laughs> as have you, St. Um That is true. In which she is utterly fucking remarkable. <laughs> yeah, and, she's really good. Uh, completely nuts.
0: No, she's in Morphe Clarkson and everything at the moment. She's in uh, Eternal Beauty as well, Craig Roberts' new film. But uh, yeah, she turns up turning up in a lot at the moment.
1: Yeah, she's got an incredible otherworldly presence about her which I imagine would be quite handy for Lord of the Rings.
0: Much like myself, Terry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, otherworldly. That's what I always say about you, James. (laughs) Exotic is the other thing I say about you.
0: (laughs) That's me, ethereal. Um, I, uh, I read a really interesting piece in Wired this week. So, we've talked quite a lot about Netflix's, uh, you know, axe happy tendencies and how they tend to kill things after two seasons. But this one really broke it down in sort of formulaic components, which I thought was really good. So, I'd quite like to mention some of those here. So, they talk about how Netflix looks at two particular data points which is the performance over the first seven days and then the performance over the first 28 days of a show being available on the service. And then they look at different groups, different sort of like uh, units of people. So the first is starters, which are people who watch one episode of the series and then stop. And then you've got completers, who are ones who finish the entire season. And then the final one is watchers, which is the total number of subscribers who essentially watch a show. And they look at all of these things together to work out this formula for whether or not to continue a series now what i didn't realize about this is that there's more money on the line for netflix than for traditional tv networks so Not only did Netflix commission the entire season and not just the pilot, but they also paid the entirety of the production costs. So with normal uh, sort of broadcast networks, they pay a portion of the production costs. The production company forks up the rest uh, because down the line, they'll be able to sell rights to it internationally or go to other broadcasters and other services, whatever. So they'll recoup the money that way. Whereas obviously Netflix hangs on to everything, so all the costs are borne by Netflix. And then of course, in addition to that, to make Netflix a more appealing platform for TV producers, they increase... Increase the pay bump, they get a pay bump each year. So season two costs more than season one, season three costs more than season two and it gets more and more expensive as it goes along. So the formula gets more complicated. It's not just about maintaining uh, viewership. If the viewership isn't growing and it's costing them more money, each series becomes increasingly unattractive to them the further that it goes on i thought and that's you know that's quite terrifying so they look at a show and it makes sense for netflix financially to commission a new show as opposed to extending an existing one because it just costs less money and potentially brings in more subscribers as well and apparently they have a, a flat bottom line that if a show hasn't grown significantly in popularity over seasons two or three then netflix believe it's unlikely to gain any new viewers and the axe loometh Some of the times they don't even get to three, though. No, no, they don't. No, they're not. Oh. Uh, and two seems well, to be the, increasingly the, often. Yeah. yeah, two seems to be the sweet spot for them, doesn't it? Like it'll get to two, and at that point, obviously, when they go into three, it's going to cost more money. The viewership's probably going to drop off, or it's certainly not going to grow, and it just doesn't make sense for them to continue. But as you've mentioned before, Boyd, like this is—it's interesting looking at the way they look at this and the scientific method of this. But what, what you've got to wonder: do they take into account the goodwill factor? The way at some point, if they continue to do this mm. shows people love, people are going to get properly fucked off.
2: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Did it did it talk about how because um, there's also the factor of the Michaela Cole factor that she that they, you know they retain all yeah. the rights to something yeah. and and that she rebelled against that quite rightly. And that's why she didn't work with them on um, I may destroy You mm. and work with the BBC and HBO instead. Um, I think which was, I think was really interesting. And um and also how um they won't let, you know, if they do act don't commission another analysis. They won't let anyone else take it on. Yeah, yeah. Because they are that. That's that's the really frustrating bit. Because I do think they're because they themselves take on a lot of stuff. You know. Yeah. Don't they? They take on shows that are axed by other channels and other um, networks, and 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 it happens all the time. In fact, but the other way around never happens or hasn't happened, and I, and that's really frustrating. Obviously, particular show, you know, I'm sure someone would take on um, some of their best shows that they get rid of. But they don't allow that, and that's that's kind of the most infuriating thing of all. Yes. Talking of Netflix, have you seen? Did you see the pictures they released of The Crown yes, season yes four? Yes, yes, I did. Yes, of Diana. Yes. That yes, Gillian Anderson's yeah. hair. Gillian Anderson looks amazing as Thatcher. Emma Corrin looks amazing as Princess Diana. Although people did nerds. Did you, did you hear about this? That in the picture of Diana um, walking through um, London, there's a picture of a modern bus in the background. Ha. Um, And nerds pointed that out. So presumably they'll have to um, CGI that out in post. But but
0: it, it looks very exciting. November 15th for the crown season four did you see that uh, morpheus or dream has been cast in sandman finally so it's says tom sturridge who you may remember from oh i don't know velvet buzzsaw or uh, hollow crown something like that um he uh he's gonna be playing dream the main character in sandman so it's pretty exciting i don't know him particularly well but uh, i'm very excited to see that show there's also talk that liam hemsworth might be up to play the corinthian who's one of the uh the villains in the show but that's not confirmed yet but uh, good to see that stuff's happening with Sandman. Very much want to see that. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, Terry, if that excites you, then you'll be over the moon to hear that a Nightbreed series is coming to TV. So yeah, Trick or Treats. Michael Doherty is going to be directing this. And it's based on, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Clive Barker's novel Cabal, but it's been before, directed by oh, Anne yeah. Star. Of course direct- we have. Was it directed by Clive Barker and starring David Cronenberg? Not directed by Cronenberg. Cronenberg I Barker directed it Cronenberg stars in it as the serial killer Decker oh
1: my god
0: but it's, it's do you know what, like, it's like it's with all the, the mutants and the prosthetics and the creatures in it like the spiny one and the guy with no skin on his head and yeah it's like a weird sort of freak show menagerie of crazy prosthetics that's why Nightflix was so uh, that's why Nightbreed was so interesting but uh Nightflix Nightflix, <laughs> Nightflix. That's, <laughs> that's why Nightbreed was so interesting um, but I, I really liked it I got kind of obsessed with that film when it first came out just because it Is a bit of a crazy freak show um so interested to see what they do with that with uh you know modern effects more
2: interestingly on the masked singer in america why are we talking
0: about the masked (laughs) singer
2: because right, I just because fucking Mickey Rourke was on it, right? So you know the mask thing is where people go on, um, it, it, the celebrities in elaborate costumes and masks, and um, he was a gremlin, and he whipped off his own mask, which never happens, and it was f- Mickey fucking Rourke. I just wanted to mention the whole joy of that idea. Um, they do eventually show it over here in on ITV, oh, like good. in six months' time. So, but yeah. That, that well, moment, we, I do. We had say.
1: our own UK version, yeah. didn't we? Oh, yeah. But,
2: and series two will be coming up, yeah.
1: And <laughs> but they don't have Mickey the, No, no Mickey Rourke. But they, you know, they had some pretty big names. And, yeah. But the rumour is that the masked singer was somehow linked to coronavirus, that the masked singer was all part of a, a ploy to get people to be more open <laughs> to masks so yes. that they could plank coronavirus yes. as a thing.
2: Yeah. That is the drama I want to see. I want to see the story of the masked singer and corona. Absolutely not.
0: There's a little bit of Disney Plus news and the superhero front. So Iman Vellani will be playing Kamala Khan in Miss Marvel. Uh, She's a complete newcomer. She's not been in anything else, to the best of my knowledge. But also Samuel L. Jackson is looking like he might be headlining a Nick Mm. Fury TV series, uh, which is nice because he's been in the background for a lot of the Marvel movies. So he might be getting a show off his own. Good question. I don't know. But uh, mm. we've had obviously Agents of Shield, not on Disney Plus, mm. but uh, as a sort of network show where Clark Gregg's been in that. But uh, yeah, Nick Fury possibly his own show. Excited well, about it's that. It's
2: safer to commission TV at the moment, isn't it, than films? Well, for a start, yeah. um, this, it's a bit, there's a lot of Samuel L. Jackson news this week because um, you know he's done a documentary series about the history of slavery, um, which he fronts, which is called Enslaved. Um, and he is in it with um, the historian, the British historian, Afua Hirsch. Oh, wow. um, Yeah, who is an amazing um, figure. She's on, she's on TV quite a lot as a pundit and stuff. And they, they've come together to make this show, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and it's going to be on BBC Two in about two weeks. In fact, I think it's probably on the Monday after um, the shows we're reviewing now. And he's going to be on um, The Graham Norton Show, talking about it, uh, on Friday week, the 16th, along with Dawn French, Michael Kiwanuka. Who won the Mercury Prize this week? And Arsene Wenger, the legendary wow. former Arsenal manager.
1: Boyd. There
2: you go. It's like yeah. you
1: manifested this show.
2: I've manifested that show. Yeah,
0: huge news. That's the biggest news, right, James? Is that the end of news now? We've now we can't well, top that. We're done. I mean, I don't know. Well, there's a, there's a Conan the Barbarian series in development. on Conan. Netflix Conan
1: Conan Conan, a Conan the Conan. Barbarian. <laughs> How much more oh, to say? Here. Here? <laughs> Conan. 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 Conan? <laughs> Conan? What, what is wrong with Conan? <laughs> well, how many different words are there in that one name? Conan? <laughs> <laughs> Their aims?
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> hang on. Hang on. You cannot give me shit about I adding mean, extra <laughs> syllables yeah. to words. Yeah.
1: Conan I
0: thought
2: you'd be in favour of Conan
1: It's Conan the Barbarian <laughs> It's a two syllable word Oh
0: good god oh, oh,
1: right, well, well,
0: well him the Barbarian is getting a TV series at Netflix so yeah
1: Okay. Woo, Conan. <laughs> Conan, I mean, of course he is as well. By the, the way, <laughs> yes, yes, <sorry. laughs>
0: that is indeed the theme tune. Oh, <laughs> oh God, does that herald the end of news? I hope
1: so. It's, yeah, it feels surely. like it might
0: do. Right, okay. Shall we move on now to the reviews? Uh, and we have four shows for you this week except we can only talk about three of them but we'll get onto that a little bit later so first up this week we have the latest addition to the walking deadiverse specifically the walking dead world beyond now, this is a young adult take on the zombie apocalypse, which is a group of teenagers in Nebraska leaving the safety of their campus community to embark on a cross-country quest to save their father, all against the wishes of shady New World Order, the Civic Republic, the face of which looks a lot like Julia Ormond. Uh, Terry, as a lifelong fan of The Walking Dead... <laughs> or at the very least someone who's currently in camden and thus witness to the zombie apocalypse firsthand what did the world beyond look like to you
1: well so this is walking dead the college years let's just get that straight right (laughs) so imagine this is a little bit breakfast club um a lot breakfast club in some ways it's a little bit uh dawson's creek the college years um and It centers around these two sisters and shock, horror, you're not gonna guess anything, but they're only like really dissimilar and not alike (laughs) at all. So there's Iris played by Aaliyah Royale, who um, is much more kind of um, straight-laced and studious. And then you have Hope who's played by Alexa Monsieur and she is a rebel. And these two sisters are unfortunately without parents, as you just said, James. They um, are separated from their father um, and you come to lend I don't think this is a spoiler because it's it's pretty much the center of their story. From the beginning, their mum had been killed when they were kids. So what I suppose is interesting in it is it plugs into the real world time frame of how long the actual Walking Dead's been going. So it's a decade, right? So it's mm. 10 years of zombie life, as I'm calling it. So... It should in some respects have this quite interesting thing at the heart of it, which is what is it like to grow up in pretty much since you were, you know, tiny kids um, in a society made up primarily of zombies and always have that threat hanging over you. And it's, you know, it's a theme that's at the heart of a lot of teen shows, but obviously they being literal zombies is something else quite different. And then also the sense of your own mortality. So there's a kind of, um, somebody says that there's an estimate that the human race will be wiped out entirely within 15 years so that the last human will die then, um, which would take these kids to about 30. So you've got these themes of normal teen shows which are about mortality. And, and you'd think because you're an actual zombie show it would make it feel fresh and interesting but weirdly it just kind of feels like your bog standard teen quite soapy drama even though it is all this extraordinary stuff as well so because you have these twins who i explained do nothing like each other um and are dealing with flashbacks to their childhood and to seeing their mum um die and even though it's ya we should say it's kind of got all the walking dead gore and it's still quite hardcore in terms of violence um But, and you even have, there's like a preppy guy who joins their little gang, um, an anthropologist um, who reminds me basically of Emilio Estevez um, in Breakfast Club. And then you have a boy who's super shy, big brown eyes, looks Dead Mardy, all the time, who's basically Judd Nelson in Breakfast Club. Um, And so you have this little group of them, the four of them. And the first episode, which is all I watched, essentially setting up the world um, that they've grown up in. They live on this campus and basically have to spend all their time keeping the zombies out. And it's about them going on this adventure to find their dad. and, And the whole thing sets it up and off they go kind of at the end. So it's, in many respects, a kind of traditional adventure story in a teen drama. Um I thought the two girls who were kind of at the center of the show were kind of fine. Um I suppose it it treads that weird line of being YA but being the walking dead so always having a foot in adult storytelling and how these stories are told. So it kind of sits in a weird place of is it hardcore enough or interesting enough for an adult audience or is it a bit much for kids? I, as I say, I watched the first episode. I think the problem it's got is there are so many Walking Dead spin offs and iterations, and how do you cut through, especially when there are exciting new teen shows around? So when I was watching this, I was thinking about. The Umbrella Academy, I was thinking about The Boys, I was thinking about Sex Education. I was thinking there are all these bold, interesting news, zeitgeisty shows that feel so ahead of the curve at the moment in terms of doing interesting stuff in a really interesting way that I thought this felt like quite a common kind of -of run-of-the-mill one of them. And it's hard to see, I think, an audience who go... Either this is an amazing new way to do Walking Dead, or it's an amazing new way to do kind of teen drama, YA. Telly, and I couldn't see really any of those things being true. I think it's fine, I think it's solid. Um, some bits were quite scary, some bits were quite full on with violence. I liked those bits. Um, but I found it hard to, I suppose, really by the end feel compelled to keep watching and like it was doing anything better than some of the other amazing telly we've seen in this genre over the last year or two.
0: Wow, that was. A long, thoughtful, quite insightful analysis of the show and I expected you to just go, It were rubbish
1: oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that as well if you want. <laughs> I did watch I like- this I watched this yeah. twice as well.
2: I like it when James reviews the review. <laughs> yes. like yes, yeah. exactly. Why did you why did you watch it twice, by the way?
1: Because I got quite bored the first time and so I kept like, you know, my mind mm. kept wandering off and I thought, I'm not gonna do that thing where I only half watch it because I've already made my mind up. I'm gonna watch it twice, I'm gonna pay attention to everything because <laughs> I don't just wanna write it off. But um but yeah, I just think it's it's just not it doesn't excel enough at any any of those things. And I just I kept thinking I would much rather be watching another episode of Sex Education. I'd much rather be watching any of those incredible things that are doing bold and interesting things. And I think it's it's never actually been harder in this kind of TV space because there's so much brilliant stuff happening right here that by comparison, I just think it seems quite middle of the road.
2: Yeah. It was uh, I actually it was actually better than I thought it was going to be. Um I guess purely because have kind of opted out of the of the Walking Dead, you know, a couple of years ago, and Fear the Walking Dead opted out of that. Probably the same same kind of time. Um, so I wasn't exactly thrilled at the prospect of this latest um, entry in the franchise, but I think it started really well. I think the first episode, like in terms of setting the scene, establishing the world, establishing the characters. It uses like a little bit of animation and a little bit... It's quite inventive um, to begin with. And it has got Julia Ormond who is fucking amazing in every scene she's in. I mean... You know. I
1: found her disappointing in this. Did you? I, I oh, love I her she was in everything. Yeah. I think she 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 walks into a room and doesn't speak in a in a film or a TV yeah. show and instantly raises it up yeah. by But I but I don't she oh. even she couldn't like do it oh, for me.
2: Okay. Oh I think she did raise it. Yeah, she raised it for me when she was in this in the scene she was in. But but I agree. It just it just feels pointless in the end because like the walking dead itself is a YA show and you know it's like young yeah. actual the the target audience you know teenagers 13 14 15 years are watching the walking dead obviously there must be a core core element of the walking dead's um viewership that made it such a success you know um and i don't see the point of slightly adjusting the tone to fit a YA audience and to focus on, as you say, these very formulaic characters who at one one point, one of them says, I'm the strong silent type in case we we didn't understand that she's the strong silent type, you know, it's got such clunky moments like that and you're right and the intensity even though it has got the zombies rampaging the intensity and I make this may be unfair I've I've only watched one and a half episodes but it feels slightly dialed down from the walking from the walking dead so I mean remember the first episode of the walking dead I remember watching that and thinking this is a visceral experience and I didn't feel that with this like you know it had moments but not but not enough to make it that powerful and in the end and it's only been up, going to be on for two limited series two They've season, established yeah. that. and you're like what's the point of that if you like I could see the point of a of a proper full-on cool young teen walking dead in that world. If you're going to commission as a thing and let it go and let it fly and, you know, let it be really out there and inventive, as you say. But this isn't that thing. And to, to make it limited for what to, this story, like it's that intriguing, this story, that it gets two chunks of series and it's going to be fascinating and we'll end it there and everyone will love it. I, I don't think so.
0: Yeah, I... <laughs> so as you know, I... I'm the only person I think still watching all <laughs> Walking Dead stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think the reason why they've obviously done this slightly odd thing is like they, they're ending the main Walking Dead series and diversification seems to be AMC's plan with this franchise now. Like they've got movies coming up. They're pressing on with Fear the Walking Dead for the time being. They've got an anthology show coming up. They've then got the Daryl and Carol spin-off. So it seems like they're trying to cast the net a little wide because the ratings for the main series The Walking Dead has been nosediving. So it was like seventeen million, I believe, in the US when it was at its peak, which was around mm-hmm. I want to say season five. And now it's it dropped under three million for the first time with this wow. most recent 10th series. So that is a big draw it's still the most popular i think the most popular drama on amc because like better call Saul gets like what one 1.7 or something so it Mm. still does okay for them but it's no longer the behemoth it was and i think they've realized they can't keep you know flogging this so they're trying to Mm. maybe change it massage it move it into different areas diversify a little bit now I am up to date with The Walking Dead. I'm a little bit behind on Fear the Walking Dead, but I am technically still watching it. I think this is the worst Walking Dead by a substantial margin. Mm. It is nowhere near even on the level of Fear the Walking Dead. I thought this was bad Um, for so many reasons. I think... We have seen so much, and The Walking Dead. Look, The Walking Dead has had a lot of episodes, and many of them have been shit. But it has had incredibly good ones. It's been extraordinary in its time, and this was so bland and so generic and so watered down. Obviously, it is aimed at a different audience, so it is less gory. But it was so clunkily written, and it just like and it didn't do anything interesting or new. And then also posed the question: Who's it for? Because on the one hand, it's aimed at a different audience, but it deepens the mythology by its immediately talking about the Civic Republic and the Three Rings, which make fucking no sense unless you're up to date with The Walking Dead or Fear the Walking Dead. You could argue, as I'm sure with you two, you don't really need to know the background of what these things are. But it's just like, but why do that? Why not do something more interesting? So when Fear the Walking Dead started, the interesting part of that is The Walking Dead skipped the zombie apocalypse. Like you rick went into a coma he woke up and we were already like a month into the apocalypse like everyone was already dead so fear the walking dead started as okay now we're going to explore the apocalypse as it happens and they did that for all of about three episodes and then skipped ahead and then it's like oh okay brilliant what well, this is now the same show again and this one again they've tried to do something new by saying right these are the first young people to have come of age during the zombie apocalypse but it just feels like much the same thing they're wandering through the world there are zombies wandering around they're yeah. trying ineptly to kill them and i just i mean i watched the first few of these and it didn't get any better i think the first one which is all set up actually had maybe a touch of potential and then the second one is super generic but it's teenagers being feckless against the zombie apocalypse there's a bit where they're playing monopoly in a treehouse where there are zombies down below it's like this is the the most bizarre dawson's creek crossover i've ever seen (laughs) um but it's not interesting or intelligent or doing anything new and i just i found this really really deeply frustrating because i was hoping for something different from it i think it does have a different feel like it's got bouncy teenage music to go along with what's happening but i just no, I'm 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 not going to watch this and i still watch fear the walking dead and i don't know if i can come up with a worse indictment than that
1: I can't believe we're actually in full agreement, James, yeah. and on the same points. It's like a miracle. There was no innovation with the mm. show at all. There's no sense of like it breaking any new ground or doing something that nobody else is doing or even attempting to, really. It's incredibly safe. Um, and, you know, the dialogue, I was like, oh, maybe, you know, was, there was a phase where, like, Dawson's Creek went through a very knowing <laughs> phase where everything was, like, hand up. But it wasn't even that. It was just kind of... Um, just really heavy handed and and as you say not done with any kind of flair or or intelligence really which i think 5 years ago oh this would have been probably seen as as one of the better things that had come out but the, i think the problem is that that this world especially this space is just full of incredible telly doing crazy mm. things that are light years ahead of of you know walking dead the college
0: is yeah like the, the hundred is a much better YA show than this is and i just think we have seen a combined 15 seasons of walking dead stuff come before this and there is nothing in this that hasn't been done better previously on mm. the other shows so it's just like why i think why i'm right in
2: saying i think I'm everyone's right saying that the next season of fear the walking dead arrives um next it does, week it does. So i don't know whether you're going to try and force <laughs> yeah, us to watch, watch it that
0: instead. Uh, Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, uh, The Walking Dead World Beyond begins on Amazon on Monday, October the 5th. Next up this week, we have part two in what is now being dubbed the Haunting Anthology series. Uh, this is The Haunting of Bly Manor, and it is Mike Flanagan's follow-up to The Magnificent Haunting of Hill House. Uh, and this time it's a take on Henry James's ghostly classic, The Turn of the Screw. A uh, lot of familiar faces in this one from Hill House, albeit in different roles. But the question is, Boyd, is this a successful turn, or is it screwed? Whoa. <laughs> amazing um okay well as
2: you as you alluded to i think we didn't we vote the haunting of House yeah. as the best yes, of 2018 yeah of 2018 so it's got a lot to live up to and to be you know let's be fair to it it's an anthology series and you know i mean any anyone who's watched american horror story which is its closest equivalent in the sense that Ryan Murphy tells a different story every season of American Horror Story. It is horror, roughly, and he uses the same core cast pretty much throughout. And this has cast members of The Haunting of Hill House returning, Oliver Jackson Cohen, um, Henry Thomas, Katie Siegel, etc. are back in, in completely different roles. Nothing to do with that. This is a completely new story. And he's, as you say, it's taken the turn of the screw is kind of the core mm. of the narrative, which, of course, has been done gazillions of times before. Um, Once this year, it, uh, in fact. This year, that the turning, yeah, yeah, which was pretty terrible, wasn't it? uh, But then it also uses other Henry James um, short stories and kind of ghost stories that he wrote to establish this story. But which is told so it's framed as a framing device um, of a a kind of middle-aged woman at a wedding who's telling the other guests this story. Um, That starts at the beginning. Then you flash back in time um, to the 80s where the most of the story is set. And you meet um, Henry Thomas's Henry Wingrave. Now, I have to say, a couple of weeks ago, the question was, what are the worst accents in TV history? And I was thinking of this one. Henry Thomas of E.T. fame. Does a spectacularly terrible posh British accent as this doofus Henry Wingrave, who is the uncle of these two kids who are at the centre of the story. He lives in London, seemingly lives in his in his office in London while and won't have anything to do with them. And so he has to find a, a, a nanny to look after them. And she goes to she goes to live with them in Bly Manor, um, where there are various spooky things going on. And the nanny is played by Victoria Pendretti, Danny. Um so he's got a terrible accent. It's almost comedic how bad his accent <laughs> is and how over the top he goes is this posh doofus. Victoria I mean, play- uh, we'll
1: just say, Go sorry on. to interrupt, Boyd. yeah, He is not the only one guilty <laughs> of the that- uh, <laughs> bad accentitis. Yeah, yeah
2: <laughs> absolutely. Um, we also meet Oliver Jackson-Cohen <laughs> as as a kind of like a figure Peter Quinn who's hovering around um, the man you don't really know who or what he is and why he's an elusive figure we'll leave it there trying not to spoil anything um, but for some reason Oliver Jackson cohen does a absolutely spectacular Scottish accent I think it's Scottish I, I believe you know, it. Start with I was genuinely- trying to be certainly. <laughs> yeah. start, I love. And by the way, I love Oliver Jackson Cohen. I think he's brilliant. He was brilliant in season one. He was brilliant in the Invisible Man. You know, in a small, obviously, you didn't see him much in the Invisible Man. <laughs> but how powerful was he as that coercive bastard in that in that film? And he's you know, for for a kind of handsome leading man figure, he's fucking charismatic and great. And he is charismatic in this, but. For some reason, they decided to give him a Scottish accent. Fuck knows what what they were thinking. It's not a great Scottish accent. Um, But more importantly, I think it's fair to say that while The Haunting of Hill House, the brilliant thing about that show was that it took The Haunting, the original story, Shirley Jackson's story, and it added layers and layers of character and narrative but like it it cut between three at least three time zones mm-hmm. and at least three generations of this family with loads of siblings almost to the point at the beginning where it was very complicated and and confusing but you carried on watching because it was so beautifully made visually stunning and brilliantly acted and it was so in- fascinating as to what this version of of ghost of ghost story was going to be about and how it was going to play out This has much less story on the on on the basic level. It's really told apart from that framing device in a fairly straightforward, linear way. Meet these two kids, one of whom the 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 young girl is intensely irritating. The boy, brilliantly, Mm. brilliant performance. I thought he's fantastic. Benjamin Evan Ainsworth. Yeah, he is phenomenal. Um, Something's not right with them. What's wrong? And how is that going to affect um, the nanny and all of the people who live in the house? So there's the kids, there's the people who look after and Miller from um, from years and years, brilliant as the like the housekeeper. There's a mm. cook, Row Coley. They're all they're all great and nice. And there's a gardener, and they're all kind of fully. They're kind of believable characters, but they're not particularly interesting, at least to start with. And they're really just kind of looking after at the behest of these two kids, and they're just. Is much less, there are much fewer characters, much less story, much more straightforward narrative storytelling, and it's just not as interesting. And I found the first, so I've watched the whole thing, nine episodes, and I would say, The annoying thing about this is, I think halfway through, it kind of got good for me. So halfway through the nine episodes, literally episodes four and five, I was like, oh, okay, this has got interesting. This feels a lot denser and more chewy. And there's, you know, kind of you get more, it dives deeper into characters. Certain episodes focus almost entirely. There's one episode that focuses almost entirely on Oliver Jackson's Cohen's character. Nothing really happens. You just kind of learn more and more about him. And I there's an episode entirely in black and white that establishes kind of the mythology of the house that I thought was really good. But the problem is it can't it can't take four or five hours to get going. And it's it's so slow. People some people thought Hill House was slow. This is really slow to start with. And I just think people won't I don't think many people will stick with it unless you're a real fan of the original as as I was, as we were, and you really want to see how it plays out. And I think it's interesting that Mike Flanagan directs the first episode. Uh, and wrote them during the first episode, and then doesn't mm-hmm. gets le- is, is is less involved. And I and I know it's an easy facile thing to say, but I think it makes such a difference. I just don't feel that subsequent episodes have his flair and feel for horror and uh, and what's frightening in the framing of of images that we, he did so brilliantly in So it's it is disappointing. It's, it definitely doesn't live up to Hill House. I, I, I carried on watching it, and in the end, there was loads of it I loved. It's a love story as much as it is a, a ghost story. It's not in any way frightening. There's moments where it's scary. There are moments where it's scary. But, yeah, it just, it just takes too long to get going. It's, it's got that, it's got that um, streaming service narrative thing. There's just not enough story for at least the first four,
0: five hours mm. of this thing. But this is part of the problem, isn't it? The Turn of the Screw is actually quite a straightforward... So it's a novella. like It's quite a straightforward, quite short story. And it also hinges a lot around psychological ambiguity, all of which is ejected in this. And it feels like to make this stretch out of nine episodes, they crammed more and more stuff into it. So this is like a Henry James mixtape. like The Jolly Corner plot of that is in there. The Romance of Certain Old Clothes finds its way in there. And it feels like they've crammed all this other shit in there to make it more interesting and to fill out the episodes. But it just crowds out the main story. Like, I found at times some of those sort of other stories, those other ghost stories he's worked in, feel out of place. And other times they just clang. Like, they don't even work. They don't even actually even mesh with the main story. I found it really distracting. I thought, I mean, I understand why they did it, but, you know, just do this, adapt it, and make it, like, four episodes long. It it didn't need to be... This length, Terry. You you've read *Turn of the Screw*, haven't you? You're like a fan of it, aren't you?
1: Fan? <laughs> yeah, I'm a massive. Uh, I'm a massive *Turn uh, of the Screw* stan. Um, so, <laughs>
0: okay, let me be Terry. You have at one point in your life read the book.
1: <laughs> I have. So you know, and what I remember because I read this referred to *Blind Man* referred to as a gothic romance, which I was like, oh for fuck's sake, because <laughs> I don't want a gothic romance. Like the reason that *Turn of the Screw*. And Henry James was so amazing as as it was chilling and macabre, and it had this weird kind of tension, erotic tension in it, and that and you know the turn of the screws speaking to that tension, that you know ratcheting up of it. And as you said, it's psychological and it's the terror within as much as the terror outside of you, and that and it's an incredibly short, powerful, intense piece of work. And this just bears no relation to any of that for me. There, It feels very slight from a story perspective. I think Boyd's absolutely right. And I didn't find it particularly scary. And then I'm like, oh, was I even meant to? You know, The thing is, if you're gonna do Henry James or Shirley Jackson, as, as they did with Haunting of Hill House, it has to have those same kind of points of DNA and same sensibilities and interest in the same things. This it feels like anything from a mood or tone perspective just got kind of cobbed out. Hmm. And what you're left with is a load of bad British accents and a, you know, nanny and a couple of irritating kids i mean it's 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 kind of lost all its bite it's lost all its flavor i'm just i got to the end of the first episode i was like i don't understand what the point of it is and i think if you are expecting it to be like hunting of hill house you'll be really really disappointed Mm. because it, it just isn't in any way um i just i was massively disappointed um and as you say, Turn the Screw has been adapted, you know, musicals, um, films, TV shows, like the Turn of the Screw has been um, uh, adapted and spun off into other things. And it's it's had such a cultural impact in pretty much every medium you can think of. And this is literally one of the worst ones. Um, and that's not because it's terrible. It's just I don't understand the choices that were made and, and where this ended up, why it ended up there. Um, um, so i think it's incredibly disappointing and um yeah, I wouldn't bother. I'd watch Wanting of Hill House again.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I can add anything that you guys haven't already said. I I agree completely. It isn't scary, which is a real shame, because Hill House was terrifying. Uh, But Mm. also Hill House was this intricate little puzzle box of, like, of Mm. intertwining timelines. And, like, when, you know, when the penny dropped at certain points, you were like, whoa, this is mind-blowing. Admittedly, I think Hill House, like, the final episode is maybe not the strongest episode of Hill House, but taken as a whole, it is amazing. And this, I mean, I made it through all nine episodes and a couple of those were clever and really interesting but i was quite bored for a lot of it because it is mm. slow and there's just not enough going on like i say i think the other stories don't really fit the turn of the screw narrative it's not particularly scary he does do that thing that worked so well in hill house that kind of ghouls and ghosts hidden in plain sight where you notice one and it scares the shit out of you and he's tried to do that again here but i think it they, it doesn't have the same effect at all. It's not chilling. It feels like a game of you know interactive Where's Wally. You're like, oh look, it's a ghost. Mm. Um, and especially because they he does an unfortunate thing of trying to, should we say, explain what all the ghosts yes. are like. Oh god. Oh my god. Yeah, which is really inelegantly yeah. done, and I thought that which, was a real shame.
2: Which, which not only is it a shame that that's a, I really wanted to mention that actually because. I would have excused it, you know, because there are moments, mainly actually due to the little boy. He has the scariest moments, I think. Yeah, he's chilling. And there are one or two instances, I think in episode six, where they they cut, they deal with, cut in time, they do very clever jump cuts, which kind of are quite scary. But as you say, it gets less and less scary because they explain... What's going on in a such a basic way? And do you remember, I remember, I think it was, uh, it was Brett Easton so if you listen to his podcast, which is often brilliant on film, and he talks about how the curse of the modern horror film is fucking explaining everything. So you establish this really scary mood and idea, and then you fucking... Clunkily explain it in the most basic way, and this is so guilty of that. <laughs> it's almost funny, and of course, what makes it even more ironic is that the turn of the screw is all about ambiguity, as Terry mm. was saying. Yeah, and this completely—it's like almost like the anti—you <laughs> know, Emery James novel, the novella, and uh, I we're going to explain it in and uh, oh yeah, that stuff I thought was that was ridiculous.
0: So, unfortunately, not likely to be our show of 2020, uh, but The Haunting of Bly Manor does land on Netflix on Friday, the 9th of October. Lastly, this week, we have adult... Material, which takes a look at the seedy underbelly of the porn industry and stars Haley Squires as Jolene Dollar, an established star of adult films who takes new girl Amy under her wing on a first day that turns out to be, shall we say, uh, eventful. Uh, Terry, what were your thoughts on all the porn?
1: Uh, oh, God. I'm going to tell you what I think, but let me first of all say I am gagging to know what you thought. Maybe the wrong choice of word. Um, but I think this one's going to be... Interesting. So first things first, I adore Hayley Squires, who plays the lead in this show. Um and I think this show it really does remind me of what Channel Four used to be really, really well known for. And it used to do dramas that were provocative and um provoke conversations, quite loud conversations, and pushing into weird and taboos spaces and this reminded me of a very kind of old school channel four show in all the best ways so it's um completely female-fronted, written by Lucy Kirkwood, who we know did Skins and Chimerica. Um, And then, obviously, Hayley plays the lead. She says, is a porn star, as you say. And it is also directed by a woman, um, Dawn Shadfuss, who's actually done loads of music videos, Bjork and Kylie, short films. Um, She did two episodes, directed two episodes of Danny Boyle's Trust, um, which I think was on FX. And she did a single episode of his Dog* materials on bbc one as well and these women together have created one of the more interesting and it's definitely going to be controversial shows of the year so far i think um and because it's looking at porn through the eyes of hayley squire's character who as you said is called, sorry, just let me get this up. She's called Jolene Dollar, which is classic, and her real name is Hayley. And it's through her eyes, and it shows both her working life, which is on porn sets, and then at home she's got kids. Um, she's in a long-term relationship with the father of her kids and you think you know what you're going to get right, which is there's probably going to be some kind of sexual assault or some awful um, scenes around consent. There's possibly going to be violence um, and I was wondering if it was going to be one of two ways in which porn is normally shown, porn and prostitution actually, which are different things, but in terms of the exchange of money um for sex or for nudity there's always two approaches in my book in film and telly one of which is essentially poverty porn but for porn if you see what i mean so i suppose that'd be porn 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 (laughs) porn. where it shows in a really grim depressing way or there's what i call the pretty woman version which is super glamorous and skates over all the dirty details um This brilliantly and expertly does neither at times a touch of both, but it really skates in this much more interesting space where it's realistic. It's funny. So there are bits where you're like, I really should not be laughing at this. There's a bit about an anal prolapse (laughs) and I've just said anal prolapse on the pilot podcast (laughs) and you shouldn't be laughing, but you are because, and I do think this has got a lot to do with the fact that it's directed and written by women. For example, when they're showing sex, when she's having sex on set, they cut away to the most mundane things like a dishwasher um, while the actual sex is happening. And it really emphasizes the kind of mechanical nature of it, the everydayness of sex when it's your job it's just like doing the laundry or something and there's some brilliant lines in it like there's a bit in episode 2 I watched the first two episodes where you know everybody says oh it's the oldest profession in the world and there's a bit where Haley Squires loses her rag and goes the oldest profession in the world is farming <laughs> um, and it really, really makes me laugh because she was clearly sick of hearing all those things and it does engage with all those tropes that you get and it also engages with stuff like the money side of it and the fact that she can only send her kids to this private school because of what she does for a job about consent and about consent with her kids who were just coming of age and, and having sexual relationships as well as consent on set on set of porn films and it engages with all these things through the other characters so you've got amy who you mentioned the new girl who's played by sienna kelly who'd been in a vanity fair And she's kind of this wild-eyed, seemingly innocent, but maybe not so, girl to the industry. Um, And Joe Dempsey, which we should say plays her partner, who's also kind of her manager, runs her social media channels, Phil Daniels is Dave, the porn director. Um, he plays a porn director exactly as you'd imagine. Rupert Everett is in it, right, as uh, Carol Quinn. And this does slay, stray slightly into cartoony. He's wearing a wig and wandering around in a, in a, in a silk bathrobe at two <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon with a bottle of champagne, eating MDMA. Um, he's a producer, like a, a porn baron from what you can tell. Um, and so through this world of her very ordinary life, but also she happens to work in porn, they get into consent. Um, there's a scene where she she's talking to her daughter about consent and she responds to her daughter in a way that you wouldn't expect. And it does challenge um, our views on consent, um, how some women may see consent differently. And it also looks at, you know, What the consequences of doing porn, do you still have um, the correct approach to consent? Are you confused about what consent is? It starts to get into conversations about what is the effect of porn on young men? What does that make them expect of young women? So all these things that have been part of our culture and debate of culture since page three and since porn i have now got this new kind of urgency and context because of social media. So social media is um, a big part of this. So I watched the first two episodes. I've got to say Hayley is brilliant. She really, really is. I think Sheridan Smith was originally Mm. signed on to play and, and couldn't make it work. She would have been great as well, but Hayley is brilliant. She plays her with loads of humor, but also she does have heart. I remember I interviewed Hayley for a um, women in film and TV panel um, at an Empire event a few years ago. And she said to me, as a working class girl, she always gets approached to play barmaids, prostitutes, you know, there's there's a handful of roles working class women get to play. But I think this isn't a stereotypical depiction of a woman who works in porn. She gives her real kind of ambition and a kind of practicality and she's she's entirely three-dimensional, which I think is really, really important in this. The script's great. There's a whole speech she gives to a um uppity headmistress um about the fact that you know she hates the fact that Haley's a working-class girl and makes three times her salary by having sex for a living. There's these great moments um that just bring the story to life through these little speeches and these little kind of backwards and forwards around all this stuff. So basically, I really liked it. I watched the first two. I think it avoids as many tropes as it can. It shines a light on those tropes. It starts to get into the really naughty stuff around consent and around all of those things around what porn does to our culture, what porn does to boys and girls coming of age. You know, James, you and I have talked about this stuff. Mm Before, uh, as we know, I used to work in men's magazines and we talked about what those men's magazines could mean for the next generation of young men. So, yeah, I I really love this and I can't wait to watch the rest because I think it's going to go into some really interesting places um, and I think it does it in a really interesting way. And I will just say from a filmmaking perspective, it's really, you. I think you can tell that the director worked in music videos before. Some of the um, edits are really interesting. Um, it's It's not in any way kind of, kind of boring traditional filmmaking it has this energy and dynamism mm. to it that i really appreciated um so two big thumbs up but no anal prolapse <laughs> from me for, for, wow for
2: no, no rosebud for <laughs> no you.
1: rosebud who knew it was called a rosebud yeah. oh
2: it's grim, i, d- isn't I it? didn't know that's what no. a rosebud was oh it's so grim.
1: Rosebud sounds nice i oh,
2: know rosebud was his sled um yeah so
1: yeah adult material two thumbs up from me
2: it is you're gonna have to delay finding out what James thinks because um yeah, I it is so brilliantly judged, I think. That's that's mm-hmm. what I came. I was just thinking because she's juggling Lucy Kirkwood in the writing is juggling a main character who's a and quotes veteran porn star at the age of thirty-three, I think she is, working yeah. class, as you say, woman, who is a very self-assured um figure and she like knows what she's doing she doesn't take any shit from the producers and the directors and all of that and you think yeah that's interesting then you've got the newcomer on her first day on set who you kind of know is going to be exploited by the director when when um Hayley Squire's character isn't there and she's representing a, the new a new something new in, in this world and different and she's gonna and she's gonna be exploited. Whereas it doesn't feel like Ellie Scrooge's character is being exploited. And then yeah. you see, I thought this was so clever. So I thought this was going to be like quite dated because I was like, well, how are they going to tie in? It's about her making in quotes porn films, but of course now it's all about people making their own um, content. Online and they, but they deal with that so brilliantly um, at home. So after a long day on set, shagging people f- in porn videos, she's then at home with her partner, as you say, uh, making her own stuff that he's literally filming in their bedroom mm. and keeping the kids out and all of that, which so that was so cleverly so real. It feels yeah. absolutely on the button, yes, this is what it would be like. And all the, well, you think, like, what would it be like to be a porn star and yet married to someone in a long-term relationship and have kids? And it kind of explores that in such a mm. nuanced believable authentic way joe dempsey saddled with a terrible goatee apart from that brilliantly offhand (laughs) just a lovely guy like yeah marv's a porn star and i'm gonna make the porn with her it's all fine and we're still gonna have sex by the way and then as you say the daughter who has her own issues with consent with her with her ridiculously um rich and uh, boyfriend was so interesting like there's a sex scene that i thought was so interesting it's it's as but, and I, you, I, I am going to mention I may destroy you, purely because it has got a lot of themes in column, in common, but it's completely different in tone. But I think potentially really really special as well um yeah. because it's got so many things going on I love the the yeah the the funny the you know when she's when they' when they're making um the film the the stuff the homemade stuff in the bedroom and her and her bloke are talking about double glazing it's like so funny and yet shocking and when the anal prolapse stuff comes I, we want, we have to warn people that is a lot to deal with, and even though obviously it's brilliantly filmed and it's not in any way exploitative and it's very carefully done but you you get a full on description of what the fuck is going on in that scene and that is a lot to take it I was at, and I'm not shocked by anything I was I was like oh my god this is a lot to deal with and it people even and as you say it's exactly what Channel 4 should be doing Dealing with it's an incredibly honest, no-holds-barred no no, no holds barred way, but it is no-holds-barred in terms of the dialogue and the scenes and what it's describing. I thought it was great. And it's a classic example. And you absolutely, like in episode two, when she goes on TV with an MP played by Carrie Godleyman out of Afterlife, et cetera, then it goes on and steps up to another level of interest and intrigue. And I really want to know how it plays out. It's an example of a non-genre thing. Like this is much more riveting and has much more narrative thrust and drive and tension than the fucking... I'm, I'm just going to pluck it out of the, air, the boys or, for me, the umbrella cam. I know, you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But it does. I think this is really gripping as well as taking you into a whole world that you don't normally see in an incredibly authentic way. It's, it's a real achievement. Nothing against the boys, sorry. But just, I'll just use an example, you know, I hope that people... Peop, it's really, really
0: compelling. You really want to know what happens next. It is. It's really, really well put together. I I think it it deals with really interesting subject, as Terry's already mentioned that like we talk a lot about the pornification of society and how it affects sort of uh, younger people today and how it kind of skews people's perceptions of sex and relationships and consent and all these sorts of things, the ubiquity of pornography and I think looking at this and the way it shows you the other side of the lens, the way it shows you how these things are put together how mechanical, how how day-to-day, how routine, how humdrum how tedious it all is and how like she's talking about when the pub's going to close while filming a scene and like she's just like it's just a job you can just imagine her like an accountant just go doing what needs to be done you know not really paying a lot of attention probably thinking about other things and it's quite interesting to see that while this isn't i mean certainly i'm sure as it goes on it's going to it's going to be looking at those sort of that broader societal impact that porn has but in this it's kind of in microcosm it's like what does it affect have on her life as a performer what effect does it have on her daughter's life as the daughter of a performer and it does ask really difficult questions. There is a part, which again, Terry's alluded to, which is where she talks to her daughter about consent and gives her quite frankly, some fucking terrible advice, but it's, it's interesting to see her perspective that even as someone who is involved in the manufacture of pornography, she is not immune to the effect that pornography has on people. That even she has maybe had her perceptions of what what you should expect in terms of consent skewed because this is the life she lives and this is what she experiences all day, every day. So it does ask a lot of very interesting, very difficult questions. It also has a you know a really interesting one where she talks about how you know how men look at her how people see her and she says when that's no longer the case you'll feel like a ghost you know when Mm -hmm. she's no longer a sex object like what does that mean and it talks about you know the objectification of women how you know societal expectations of women are so tied up in their appearance and their sexuality and what it means to be a woman when those things are no longer things that you can rely on certainly when it's your job
1: that bit really as a woman as a woman of 41 Mm. and a half that whole speech about what happens to women of a certain age um, when you're just not seen. And the, when she says, you become a fucking ghost and that, I have to say, like, chilled me to my bones because it because we, all women feel like that. Yeah. We feel we become invisible because women are judged on youth and attractiveness. The older you get, the less value you're seen as having and the less visible you are in society. But as you say, imagine that your job is that, then when that goes, everything goes. You must feel. Um, I thought that was an incredible moment. Mm. It's
0: uh, it, it really does ask some difficult questions. And and again, that's one point where uh, yeah, your leather flat cap wearing porn director is talking about. It. He's saying, you know, it's rough. It's rough being a creator of pornography in 2020 because people get so much shit for free on the internet. It's like, it's hard to find stuff that people will be prepared to pay for. And he's kind of alludes to the fact that it's not really a spoiler that he's trying to, they're trying to get one of the, they're trying to get the new girl to do an anal scene. And he's like, you've got to keep pushing the envelope. So it's almost like the need for more extreme stuff that people will pay for is what they need to do to survive as an industry. But that is exacerbating this fundamental societal problem we have, which is the pornification of society um see it is it is it asks lots of questions it's really interesting it's it's a great subject matter i will not be watching any more of it because it depressed the living shit out of me
1: did you not find it funny
0: no i found it really grim you know i mean it is grim like the whole point is it is grim like making porn is kind of grim it's a grim business to be in it's not the most fun you know and i just i found the whole thing just made me feel a little bit sad and so i don't you know i i don't think it's a show that i will persist with that said i applaud it and i think it's extraordinarily well made it's just not really for me
2: it is i may destroy you all over again because yeah gonna miss i just i struggle really, with it really, really... i struggle with it like the yeah. subject
0: matter just brings me down and i just i don't i don't really need to subject myself to this like it's just not but fun. it's
1: not I like the fact it doesn't like wallow in the misery mm, of it and it's no. not didactic at all there's not the judgment and then you know the the motivation to create this this picture of misery as kind of a warning to women mm. it's it's there are i found much more levity in it, I think, and and yeah, really same. appreciated that and enjoyed that. You know, they were prepared to show that alongside, as you say, somebody being pressured into doing anal on their first day at work. It's it's having both of those things and slipping between those tones. I think mm. was is really tricky.
0: Yeah, it's it's very well done. It is very well written. It's very well directed. It's very well acted. It's, all of it is 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 great. Um, it's just it's there's just just honestly, Terry, there just aren't enough spaceships really for me so. <laughs> of course uh, anyway adult material begins on channel four on monday october the 5th at 10 p.m so what else is out this week, Boyd? I will say the finale that isn't the finale of The Walking Dead also airs on, uh, on Fox UK. Uh, this is on Monday, October the 5th at 9pm. Uh, this is the, fin- the long-delayed finale of season 10 of The Walking Dead, which is now no longer the finale <laughs> of The Walking Dead because they're getting a bonus six episodes of the 10th season of The Walking Dead at the beginning of next year before the double-length 11th season starts at the end of next year and then continues the <sighs> year after.
2: I'm glad you explained that because yeah, I was sent the press release and I was really confused. Is it
0: the finale or not the finale? yeah or, It's the oh, finale, but there's know. now an extended epilogue coming. Yeah.
1: The finale. Yeah, the finale, finale
0: with Conan. Finale. Conan will with be appearing Conan. in the finale. Yeah.
1: <laughs> barbarian, the finale. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my
0: god. Um,
2: um there is the the right stuff, which we thought we were going to be able to review. That's right. Fact, which you and I have both after. seen.
0: Yes, and I was ready to um, review, but we're not allowed to talk about it because the embargo is on Tuesday,
2: right? Um, so maybe we'll we'll mention it more next yeah, week. We'll but, talk about um, it next week. Yeah, that's on Friday on Disney Plus, and it is their kind of I think eight nine hour version of the Tom Wolfe yeah. book that became uh, a, an excellent film, um, and now it's a nine hour Disney Plus <laughs> uh, drama series. Say no more. Originally made by National Geographic, which is all owned by Disney, of course, now, mm. but it was going to be on that channel, and now they've moved it to Disney Plus, so it's they quite, have, yeah. it's kind of one of their showcase shows. Uh, that's the main other thing. The third uh, day winter begins on uh, oh, Tuesday yes. at 9 p.m. That is true, which is the Naomi Harris. Um, lead, she's now the lead in the second, if you like, the second after the the, the as live event. This is the new story, although it is connected mm. um, to the previous story with Jude Law. She arrives on OC the island with her two daughters um, on holiday, and I, I've I've watched the, the first two of these episodes. I have to say, it does not go according to plan. Is <laughs> the greatest under. <laughs> understatement of tv drama history it continues to be i think brilliantly brilliantly inventive
0: and fascinating that that series yeah uh the spanish princess is back i believe as well
2: oh yeah on sunday you're right yes which is the second chunk of like an epic season i think it's like eight more episodes we've already had eight episodes i think about a year ago maybe yeah that has its fat that has its huge fans that show um I think
0: I felt like we reviewed. We might have reviewed. We did. The last. We did. We did yeah, review okay. the last bit. But right. sort of as of now, the warrior nun is my Spanish princess. So yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Penis. The latest season of Penis arrives on Sky Comedy. P E N one five. That one. Do you know that comedy show? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's back. Uh, but that's broadly speaking it. So pick of the week. I think I know where you're going with this. Oh, adult material.
1: Adult material. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. Yes. I think it, unarguably that is the best show on this week. Which is a shame, because I had high hopes for Bly Manor, but there you go. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Uh, shall we do a quick Banshee segment? The Banshee segment, of course, being where we take a classic, quote-unquote classic, where we take an old show, perhaps lesser-known show, and recommend it for our listeners. Terry, would you like to kick us off?
1: Yes, and I'm going to kind of um, do something that I shout at you for. Oh, God. Um, which is suggest something too well-known. But um, it is... Uh, Black History Month and a lot of the channels and streaming platforms are doing special programming um, or kind of gathering together loads of shows in one place so Netflix um, I have compiled something called Netflix Black British Stories that's a tongue twister and in that is one of the best shows of the late 80s slash early 90s which is Desmond's So I am bansheeing Desmond's which is very popular I know but it was kind of the lesser known of the ones on the list and I do think we should give a shout out um, uh, to Black History Month so Desmond's was channel 4 late 80s to early 90s and it was obviously set around um, a barbershop set in Peckham we all remember pork pie right please James tell me you've watched the show (laughs) no (gasps) oh You've never watched Are you actually, like, having a laugh?
2: Of course laugh? he hasn't. A, it's a comedy. <laughs> B, it's a comedy.
1: That's insane.
2: Sorry.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. So it's essentially around this family called the Ambrose family. Um, Desmond, who was the kind of, um, he owned the barbershop and he was the dad. And there was Pork Pie. Who was, was Pork Pie actually related that? Boy, that's what I could never work out
2: Oh, I can't remember that
1: So he, so Pork Pie always wore a Pork Pie hat Hence he was called Pork Pie Um, And it was very much around this family dynamic In the barbershop and we used to have it on in our house every single week. James, why don't you watch an episode for next week's?
0: I, I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be watching show. Doomsday of Doctor Who, which I didn't watch this week. So Oh
1: yeah, so oh. I haven't I not had a chance for you to shout to that. Hang on, you shouted at me earlier for not watching <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Yeah. Um yeah, so there we go. Desmonds, it's on um it will be on all four only four O D you four. But <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm flagging it on Netflix as part of their Black British Stories thread, um, which is for Black History Month.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: 30 minute episodes.
0: Well, that at least is a recommendation. Um, I want to talk about Felicity specifically the jj yeah. abrams college set show felicity which aired for four seasons from 1998 uh this was what kind of put kerry russell on the map uh and she was uh she played felicity the title character someone who on her last day of high school uh, a guy who she's always fancied signs her yearbook and says in in when he signs it he says he wishes he'd got to know her better inspired by this she sacks off her place at Sanford and follows him to New York uh, and goes to university there and it's all about her life as an undergraduate as she goes to university there it's got like Scott Speedman's in it Scott Foley's in it Greg Grumberg but it's a really, really well-written show. It's lovely, and it has a real sort of sense of of humanity and character. It's light, it's fun, uh, but it deals with a lot of sort of really relatable issues from university. Um, it has Amy Jo Johnson in it, the pink Power Ranger, as one of her best friends. Um, but Felicity, weirdly, has become almost most famous for two things. One was kind of introducing the world to J.J. Abrams' obsession with... Uh, surprises and mysteries so there's a character in this called Megan who is uh, is Felicity's roommate she's got a goth Wiccan and she has this box Megan's box and you never really know what's in Megan's box but Megan doesn't let anyone look in her box she won't let anyone open the box it's like the secrecy of what's in the box and Abrams always said it was more interesting that she had a box than actually knowing what was in the box which is his whole philosophy around mysteries like he believes the presence of a mystery is almost is the more interesting thing than actually exploring the mystery itself uh, but he made this with matt Reeves who's a friend of his and obviously went on to do, uh, to do bigger and better things. Um, but as I was saying, this became very famous for Felicity's hair. So she had Kerry Russell's famous golden curly hair. She had a mass of it. And between season one and season two, she cut her hair and ratings fell off a cliff. So it's become one of these things. It's become an urban myth now that Felicity's hair was the death of the show. It actually ran for four seasons. It didn't kill the show, but it did hurt the ratings. And so people talk about, oh, you know, it's, it's become now common knowledge that cutting of Felicity's hair ruined Felicity. But of course, what they failed to mention is yes, she cut her hair, but they also moved the show to a different time slot. So actually that had much more to do with it. And it wasn't really to do with her hair at all. But uh it makes for a much better story if you believe that when Felicity cut her hair, people stopped watching the show. But anyway, Felicity was very good. Uh JJ Abrams and Matt Reeves back in their youth. Watch it (laughs) wherever it is. Where it is DVD. Yeah it's probably on DVD. Watch it there.
2: Is that Shop Stallone, your favourite shop? If you're a yeah, you can probably get that. Yeah. I haven't there checked.
0: You, you might be able to. Okay.
2: My one is GBH. And I was thinking of, because um, adult material, I was thinking it, which, which as you were saying, is a brilliantly Channel 4 drama, probably the best example of a Channel 4 drama in, in, a long, in quite a long time. And GBH for me, which was, came out in 1991 and was a one series of seven episodes written and created by Alan Bleasdale and was a... Um, absolute textbook, Channel 4 drama, dealing with life under Thatcher, dealing with um, the political battles between the left and the centre in the Labour Party explicitly. So Robert Lindsay played this leftist, hard left character who was a womaniser and was kind of twitchy and demented. Michael Palin was the kind of centrist dad before centrist dads were a thing Um, who was also kind of a troubled figure and had a weird fear of bridges, of going over bridges. But More than anything, and the soundtrack was by Elvis Costello and Richard Harvey. And this was, I mean, The Boys in the Black Stuff is is probably the show that Alan Breesdale's most famous for and was an absolute masterpiece. But I think GBH felt like such an epic, ambitious series at the time. Um, I haven't gone back and watched it because I I kind of feel like it's from that era where it's going to feel so dated just purely in terms of the way it's shot and everything, but I am tempted. But it was phenomenally... Provocative and challenging and bold and daring. Um, so and it is on all four as well. So GBH, all the episodes on all four. And I myself am going to check them out um, because I absolutely fucking loved it at the time. Okay. And can I mention one thing actually? Which because news has broke in today that. Um, Russell T. Davis's new series which was called Boys and is due in January on Channel 4 Channel 4 have, have, have released the first shot of it it's retitled it's been retitled to It's a Sin No, So. Pet Shop Boys Lyric. Pet Shop Boys Boys Lyric. And um, because it is set in the 80s. So that is kind of perfect. So it's set in the 80s. It's about a group of um, people meeting in that period. Um, It's like a kind of almost like a spiritual prequel to Queer as Folk. It's does Ollie Alexander um, from um, the band Years and Years. And uh, I went on set and it's going to be great. But yeah, that is big news. It's now called It's a Sin.
0: It's a Sin and on that note that is it for this sexy undead haunted episode of the pilot tv podcast as ever we welcome your reviews pornographic or otherwise on apple podcasts much like the stereophonic when he said love the chat and childish though it may be to say as a 40 year old i love that they swear feels like a chat in your favorite pub You're welcome. You can experience our swearing on Twitter and Instagram at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. And do remember to join us once again next week when, embargoes willing, we'll have had a chance to see the all-new third season of Star Trek Discovery. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Of course, failing that, we can always just get Terry to watch the new series of Fear the Walking Dead, which drops as well. So you can find out which way that particular cookie crumbles on next week's show. Pilot out.